Good morning, you can be seated. And kids, you can either stay and listen to a great sermon or you can go with Jamie, whatever you want to do. And I won't take it personally. You're gone. This is a time of bittersweetness today for our church body. And welcome if you're here. A number of us got notice earlier this morning of the following. Early Sunday morning, Nancy McCracken slipped into the secure arms of her Savior Jesus. <clears throat> she is now home, happy, healthy, whole, and more alive than she's ever been. And Steve noted the information with Lazarus. Jesus specialized in caring for those who were sick and ill and had died. And when Mary and Martha came to Jesus, troubled that their brother had died, um, the uh, instructions of Jesus were, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whatever lives and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? And we do. Steve says her final days in this life were spent with her family sharing many tender moments praying, reading God's word, singing, telling stories, laughing, and crying together. A celebration of life gathering is being planned, and it will be announced shortly. Truly, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we have, in the midst of the grief of the loss of, temporary loss of loved ones, the consolation and hope that to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we are very grateful today that we have the hope and that Nancy has translated from her earthly life face to face with you and with Jesus who is our Savior. We pray for the McCracken family, for Larry, for each member of the family, that you'll give them the comfort and consolation that comes with only those of us who love you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> In the three or four years that I've been here at the church body, uh, you've gotten to know something about me. When I was in high school, I was a rebellious high schooler, and I went to church. Actually, our family didn't have a car, so we would walk from our little home on 122nd Avenue down to 84th Avenue every Sunday morning to Central Bible Church. It was a forced march by my mother under protest. And so I didn't want to go to a sermon, so I would hide behind the piano in the library during the sermon. And Dr. John G. Mitchell was the pastor then. And uh, he would come into the library, he'd come out behind the piano, he'd grab me by the collar and drag me into church to listen, into the meeting to listen to him. And uh, and it was an ironic thing that later on in my life, I shared the same faculty platform at Multnomah with Dr. Mitchell. And we had many a good laugh about those early days. But Dr. Mitchell loved to say, and I've never forgotten that, Dr. Mitchell loved to say for someone like Nancy, you say, good night, earth, good morning, glory. So we continue to pray for them. We are in the book of James, and I, I, I'm a little bit dizzy today because... We are still in our third year through the book of James, 
and we're breaking into chapter 4. So we're kind of a little ahead of the game. And a number of you said, John, you need to slow down. Well, you know, we, we, we will. And you have a handout in your program today that goes through 12 verses in chapter 4. We won't make it through 12 verses in chapter 4. But that is something that will help you break out the text and what we're doing today. There are a number of questions that came up from last week as we finished chapter 3 in dealing with the earthly wisdom versus, versus wisdom from God. And um, I want to take, I don't have the time to do it, but I asked myself and gave myself permission to do this. I'm going to do a rabbit trail with you for a minute because we ended the message last week in terms of dealing with the issue of wisdom from above, wisdom that is from God. The question comes up, how do I know when I get there? We ended up in James 1. Let him who lacks wisdom ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. And so how do I know if I'm in a quandary and I need something, I need to know what to do, how do I know <laughs> what to do? Well, the, the bad news is you're not going to get handwriting in the sky. You're not going to get that. The good news is we've got all that we need right here in the book. Speaking of which, as is my tradition, hold up your Bibles or your phones or your iPads. Good. All right. Good. Very good. You passed the test. Um, you're not going to get handwriting in the sky, but it's, it's akin to spiritual gifts. You know, I... We've been through a, a series of ups and downs in the Christian church where at times the Christian church is fascinated with spiritual gifts. How can I minister if I don't know my spiritual gift? Here's the good news. Don't worry about it. <laughs> spiritual gifts are all turned into commands in the New Testament. It's not a matter whether I have the gift of giving. It says give sacrificially. It doesn't matter whether I have the gift of mercy. It says act with mercy. On and on and on. And it's the same with wisdom. If you're praying for God's direction on life and decisions for you, here's your blueprint. The wisdom from above, from heaven, is first pure. Notice it doesn't say perfect. We'll deal with that today. Pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy. You do that in the decisions that you're facing. You follow that in your life construct. And you can be confident that God is honored in your decisions. Chapter 4, verse 1, reading from the New International Version. What, calls, what causes fight and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet. But you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. Now let's stop for a minute and I'm going to keep reading. This is written to believers. Luther was confused about this book in chapter 2 with justification by works and wanted to pull it out of his Bible, but we talked about that. That's justification before men. I love John MacArthur's teaching out of California. I love it, but he's wrong in this text. When you get into the harsh, heavy stuff instructed to believers, you want to say, well, that, that, that can't apply to believers. It can, and everything we're reading today is applied to these Christian saints scattered in the first century because we know that James has said he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be kind of first fruits of all that he's created. So everything we're going to talk about today, folks, the bad, the good news, the bad news is it applies to us. As regenerate believers, 
but still in the battle. All right, moving on. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? So one of the texts we're going to find out today is when we act badly, and we're going to talk about Christians who act badly, you know what happens? It triggers God's jealousy toward you. That's good news. He more intensely wants you to do better than even you want to do. Moving on. We've got to get through this. Um, envies intensely that he gives us more grace. That's why scripture said God's opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And that's the other question that came out last week in addition to how do I find wisdom is what's the place of the devil in the life of a Christian? We'll talk about that. Um, <clears throat> resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You see why MacArthur wanted this to apply to unbelievers? It's not, it's believers. You double-minded, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. <clears throat> Brethren, excuse brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against the brother or judges him, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? A lot of stuff, we'll start getting through it today. In 1927, a submarine entitled S-3 surfaced near Cape Cod and ran into a Coast Guard cutter, a destroyer. It's written about in a book called 17 Fathoms Deep by Joseph Williams. And the Coast Guard ship, as it ran into that submarine, put a slice into it, and the submarine sank. There were 40 sailors on that submarine, and in the collision and shortly after in the sinking, 34 of them died. Six remained alive in an air pocket in the submarine. And all the Navy and all the rescue ships and all the deep divers immediately scrambled, knowing that there were still some people alive in that sub, to go rescue them. And as they were working on trying to rescue those remaining six men, one of the divers heard this. So he came up to the side of the sub, and he realized that the sailor inside was sending Morse code. And the Morse code that he, that he heard and that he translated was, is there any hope? For those men, there was not. They all died. But the message for today, and it's a hard message today, that really is going to get to the core issues of we as Christians is there is hope. 
from a God who wants us to do better even more than the spirit that's in us wants to do better. In fact, what we're going to learn today is that the race that we're in has already been won, but the race that we're in still needs to be run. It's been won, but it needs to be run. We open our text today with talking about fighting and quarreling among these believers and envying and asking God in prayer for things so that they can make a bundle and spend it on themselves. And we're not surprised about that because the book of James has already talked to us about in James chapter 2 for that first century church who met on Sunday night because that's the only time the slaves could get off and that was 70% of the first century church, that on Sunday night when they met, they would shuttle the rich folk and the politicians, boy, don't get me started, up close, and they would shove the poor people, the poor believers into the back. And, and James, in no uncertain terms, said, that's discrimination, it's hypocrisy, it's an indictment against the very name of God who you serve. So we know they've played those games, now we find out that in chapter 3, and we saw this last week, in chapter 3 there is, there's more things going on. Verse 16 says, Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. And for where you have envy, you have selfish ambition. There you find disorder and every evil practice. Say, wait a minute, stop. You're saying that regenerate Christians, born-again Christians, can still degenerate into every evil act. And I didn't write this. The answer is yes, they can. You say, well, John, then they're not Christian. <laughs> you remember my favorite verse from 2 Timothy 2.19? Only the Lord knows those who are his. That's the first half of the verse. And I love that um, because it really is the Lord's domain. But the last part of the verse is the sequel. It says, but let those who name the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. In other words, only the Lord knows, who's there, there, only the Lord, Lord knows those who are the, his. But if there's a pattern of evil and wickedness in one who's made a profession of faith, the longer it goes, the more... I don't know what's going on. Let's see if we can figure that out today. Fighting and quarrels going on here. People asking in prayer for things so they can spend it on their own selfish end. And we find in this text that as Christians we have two adversaries. <laughs> it's like the psychiatrists who were walking along the road and when they got to each other, the one said to the other, well, you're okay, how am I? You know, um, the two adversaries are, first of all, the evil one. Satan is our adversary as Christians. We should know that. Genesis 3, he slipped into Adam and Eve and contaminated that situation. And as daughters of Eve and sons of Adam ever since, we are fallen. We should know that from Job chapter 1 and 2. I love that part in Job 1 and 2. You remember that? <laughs> Satan comes to God and says, 
Job. He would curse you if you took everything that he had. And God said, go ahead. But remember that I've put, uh, Satan, you're right, I've put a hedge around Job. You have limited access to him. And so Job in chapter 1 lost possessions and family and everything. And in chapter 2, Satan came back and again, God said, where were you? And then wandering around the world. Um, and Satan says, strike him. Take his health. Strike his flesh and he'll curse you. And God said, you can do that. But remember, Job has a hedge around him. So we're not surprised that the evil one has designs on us from the Old Testament. But it's not just the Old Testament. Do you remember Jesus' instructions to Peter? Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. That said, to regenerate Peter, Satan had designs on him, wanted to act like a threshing floor and sift him, separate him, distract him, ultimately ruin him. And then Jesus said one of the most compassionate things to Peter in the New Testament, maybe second only to John 21 where he says, feed my sheep. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you recovered, go turn back and strengthen your brethren. If you ever run into anybody who thinks that they've failed to the point or that you failed to the point where you're discarded in God's domain, go to this passage. When you've recovered, go and strengthen your brethren. So even to the disciples, the evil one, Satan, had designs on them and Jesus interceded on their behalf. And lest we misunderstand that, in chapter 3 of James, in the very book that we're in, and verse 15, we saw last week that the evil one has designs on us, and the text says the wisdom that is from the earth is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. You and I can be a handmaiden of Satan in our evil conduct. So, John, you're getting kind of weird here. You're talking about, um, are you talking about uh, exorcism? No, I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about an adversary that we have that would like to move our behavior to such an evil pattern that it serves his purposes and not God's purposes. And again, he's the first of two adversaries that we deal with. There's a second adversary that we deal with. <laughs> And it's me. It is the very struggle that I have. And though we've talked in Romans 7 and Romans 8 about Paul saying, I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do, we got it right. We have it right here. You see verse 1? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? What's that? Desires that battle within the life of every believer. Now, if James is right that we all struggle in many ways, and if James is right 
that all of us have battles within our members, then everybody in this congregation, present company included, is in a war. You are. And if you don't admit that, you are naively ignoring what it's going to take to get you into maturity with God. So what do you do? Well, the first thing you do is you admit the battle. On a weekly basis, I'm regularly reviewing my life and the people that I've decided I'm not going to curse who cut in front of me on the road and uh, my political persuasions that I'm trying to ignore and um, obeying the scriptures which says don't curse men who are made in the image of God. But there are, and those, those are the regular ups and downs of every week that we go into. The words that were said wrong, rashly, the behavior that was done selfishly, the needs that were ignored when you had an opportunity to meet a need. But then some of us have deeper valleys too. Those valleys are ones where we're in fairly direct rebellion with God for a period of time. I've been there. And through no, uh, through no uh, commendation on myself, there were times when I was running from what I knew God wanted me to do for weeks on end. And I want to tell you that that's a battle within the members, that what brought me back were a whole range of things having to do with brothers who I met with, Christian brothers, the spirit of God who lives in me, and the word of God that brought conviction. You say, John, that's a little weird, and I'm telling you it's not a little weird, because in James chapter 5 it says, if he has, <coughs> let's get it here. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. And that's the kind of spiritual demise that comes to a believer. And it says, essentially, that if you confess your sins one to another, that brothers can come alongside, the spirit can be involved in your life, the word can be involved in your life to move you back to where you need to be. But that's the battle of the members. That's the one who, if you're not careful, leads to you being in Philippians 3, the two women that fought with each other. We called them Soon Touchy and who was the other one? I can't remember her name right now. Yeah. Uh, but it's all through the New Testament of Christians who disregard the work of the Spirit in their life and the work of the Word and act in a way that's unseemly. And when that happens, when that happens, this text says, in your adversary, which is Satan, and in your own struggle in your members, you need to understand this. First of all, verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity, is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture is without reason when it says the spirit causes to live, live in us, envies us intensely that he gives us more grace? So in some senses, it's not black and white in life. We talked about last week moral versus wisdom issues. But a lot of decisions, they're not black and white. This one's pretty black and white. This says if you opt for being a friend of the world rather than being a friend of God, not only do you begin to succumb to the members that war within you, 
but you also then trigger the jealousy of God, the envy of the Spirit of God who is indwelling the life of every believer at the time of their conversion and who begins to draw them back in a way toward grace. Now, there's a process for that to take place. It takes a while to get into the briar patch. It takes a while to get out of the briar patch. And the process by which a believer walks out of the world and into things that have to do with friendship with God start with verse 6. He gives more grace. God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. Okay, what's going on? In the legal world, we have ways to figure out how people lie, why people lie. I mean, there are people who say you can look at somebody and tell they're lying. I can't do that. But, but I guess people, some people have that talent. But in the legal world, we have things called lie detectors, and that works most of the time. <laughs> it doesn't work all the time. But most of the time it works. I think I've had a lie detector test once in my 30 years, and uh, I think they finally decided that I'm a little strange, but I was telling the truth. Um, but we have other things besides lie detector tests. We have urine analysis where we can find out if you're doing drugs by your urine or your blood or your hair follicle. Uh, and so there are various ways that we try to figure out and confront people with, you're not telling the truth. Well, in the scriptures, the analysis is internal, and it has to do with the phenomena of pride. If you're in a situation where you're tempting to assert your own interests, your own selfish ambitions, your own benefit to spend it on yourself, then the Bible says that's pride, and the opposite of that is grace. He gives grace to the humble. So the Spirit of God, who jealously wants us to do well, will give us more grace. Well, I already had grace. I'm saved. You are. But there are two major themes in the New Testament. I'm going through a lot today. The first major theme is salvation. It comes when you believe in Christ. It's salvation through nothing that you do, it's not of works, it's done, it's, it's by grace you are saved through faith. That's salvation. But the second theme of the New Testament is discipleship. And this whole course of discipleship is what we're talking about. We're talking about pilgrims that move along the road to the celestial city. Remember last week we talked about John Bunyan's 1687 book called Pilgrim's Progress. And we talked about Christian and his buddy who fell into the slough of despond. And his buddy got out and immediately booked back to the city of destruction and left Christian. But another traveler came along named Help and helped Christian out of the slough of despond. And when he helped him out, Christian said to Help, who was the Holy Spirit, he said, why is that slew of despond in my life? And the Holy Spirit said, this miry slew is such a place as cannot be mended. In other words, God has designed sloughs of despond for us to teach us that we need to depend on him. But Christian traveled on after the slew of despond into the hill of despair and found himself in the, into a, into an, in his first night in an inn called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Now, Christian was on this journey because he was overwhelmed with his personal sin. 
he'd been involved enough in reading the Bible that he knew he was in trouble. And early in the book, he is saved. He has a conversion experience, and he's saved. And so the majority of the book has to do with him as a pilgrim, as a disciple. But in his salvation, he, at the valley of the shadow of death, became convinced that he should fear no evil that God was with him, and that, in fact, God would lead him into the affairs of life that would cause him to move to the celestial city. And that's exactly what we're doing in the book of James. James, this first book, this primer for the early church, the first book for 15 years that the church had after the death of Christ before Galatians, you ask yourself, what is it that God wanted this early church to know, and this is a critical theme. He wanted them to know that you can get grace and mercy and wisdom when you ask of God, or you can get in a lot of trouble if you pursue wisdom, which is of the earth. And if you do, if you pursue that, then in fact, rather than giving acknowledgement to the pride issues in our lives, this text says he gives grace to the humble. Now, grace in the New Testament is, is something that is a continual measure in the life of believers. It's that kind of thing that says he continues to reach in and carry us through the circumstances of life that we may not have asked for and we may um, not choose, but we need to know what is an honorable way to get through them. When I deal with... Uh, Christians who are in a struggle and who are acknowledging that their lives have not been the way they want it to be, there really are two ways you can go. That Christian can be too easy on themselves or too hard on themselves. There are a few genuine Christians who are too hard on themselves. They beat themselves up over the kind of normal maladies that come in Christian living. I remember Lewis Sperry Chafer, who was founder of Dallas Seminary, had an early faculty meeting, and this was really before the Earth's crust hardened. In the 19, I think it was 40s, he had a little faculty meeting, and Lewis Sperry Chafer, this guy that when he prayed, you'd want to take notes, he was so godly. Um, he confessed to his early faculty friends that the week before, he'd been looking at a woman's ankles. He was quite convicted about it, confessed it, and they went on, and I thought, uh, ankles don't do anything for me, but maybe in the 1940s it did. But <laughs> that's the nature of the beast. And there are some Christians who, who are too hard on themselves. It's just the affairs of fallen men and women that we get through the vicissitudes of life and we don't always understand. We don't always make, make right decisions. The greater number of Christians who've gone through bad decision-making processes are too easy on themselves, not too hard. Remember I said when you read the Bible, there are two steps, interpretation and application. In every sermon, interpretation, application. If you're too easy on yourself, then you have to ask the question, am I really being honest with myself? I've had men and women, I've had family, I've had church people come to me 
and they lovingly have confronted me on things, and I just flat out haven't changed. And I don't think I'm going to change. Uh, what do you do with people like that? I thought all week about the answer to that question, what do you do with people like that, and, and I came up with this profound answer. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I just apply it to my own life. There are times when believers came to me and when I was in the midst of rebellion and I said, go take a hike. I didn't forget that they came and they came in love and eventually it did draw me back. But if you're in a place where you're running from God or you know someone that's running from God, it's time to stop because it gets progressively more dangerous in terms of the discipline of God. And I say that as someone who's been there. I'm no better than you. I've had the same risks in my life when I've made bad decisions. And the way it starts is with honesty. In the Christian church, we don't have lie detectors. We don't have urinalysis machines. We don't have hair follicle tests. But we can have honesty. And if you think you can't be honest with yourself, go to a trusted brother or sister and say, this is where I'm at. Help me. That's biblical. That's James 5. Starts with confession. You know, um, I told you that in Steve's teaching on prayer about two years ago, it began to transform my rather pathetic prayer life so that now I have a regular prayer pattern. For me, it happens to be that on my drive to work, because I turn off the radio, and then I go through the list of people that I'm praying for. But it almost always starts with not only that I'm thankful for the day that God's given me, but I have to review my own sin and mistakes of the more recent past. The scripture says, confess your sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. And that's not a conversion passage in 1 John 1, 9. That's to believers. You keep a short account in terms of your relationship with God so that you're restored in fellowship and forgiveness and repentance in a way that your prayers are honored by him. They're not ignored because you're asking for things with wrong motives. So confession is where you start. And then you take benefit of the scriptures. And that's why from last week, I had a number of you after I said, memorize James 1 and you got a reward coming. <laughs> I had a number of you saying, I've already done that. And I said, well, you've got to do something else. You don't earn the reward for something you did in the past. So they said, well, I've kind of forgotten it, so I'll do it again. But get into the word. I'm telling you, it's the scriptures combined with the spirit of God that will do for you what nothing else can do. That's the kind of healing and restoration that turns you around. And, and so what I want to say is if someone's in that place, or you know somebody's in that place, stop. Slow down. Back off. Take assessment of yourself and clean yourself up with confession. And when you do that, you're in an honorable place. You're in a place where the Spirit of God has already gone in front of you and said, I jealously want you to do that. I want you to be in full restoration with the Heavenly Father. 
there are other processes that you can go through in terms of that. Not only in James chapter 5, but there's a place that the church plays in that. Uh, Jesus taught in Matthew 18. If someone sins against you, go to him in private. Remember that? And if you restore, if he, if he confesses and repents, just between the two of you, you've moved him back onto the path. So if you know somebody who's struggling, such as people who came to me in sin, go to him in private and talk to him. And then Matthew 18 says, and it gets a little, the church gets a little nervous at this point. Um, it says, if he refuses to repent, take two or three so there'll be a witness. So the second stage is you take a brother or sister with you. And in that set setting, you again ask him to reconsider his life and his sin. When I was on the faculty at Multnomah, we had one of our faculty members that we didn't know his marriage was in bad places. <laughs> but he linked up with another woman in another church. He was actually a leader in a church we started. And they split for Las Vegas. Great. So... <laughs> Um, we went through Matthew 18. First, we went to him, uh, just a couple leaders in the two churches, and asked them to repent. They said, no, this is an amazing apartment. There aren't any apartments in Las Vegas. It's got to be God's will that we have this apartment. Yeah, you're, you know, you're a human wasteland. That's not at all what the reasoning should be in that. But then they didn't. So two or three went, and they still didn't repent. And so then came... I've only been in this twice in churches, but it should happen more than this. Third step is you tell it to the church. And in our church, it wasn't a time of condemnation. It was a time of grief. It was a time of tears for this brother that had wandered from the faith and from his family. And the church prayed for them and wrote letters and interestingly enough, it was a letter of a little 12-year-old boy that was written to that man that broke his heart. And he came back to his family and he came back to the church. So there are various ways in which you deal with sin in your life as a believer. Here's the point. You deal with it. You don't sweep it under the rug. You don't say, that was swamp gas, it'll go away. It doesn't go away. It's all part and parcel of grace upon grace that will get you to the place where you've humbled yourself before the Lord and he lifts you up. What are our conclusions we can come to from this amazing passage? First of all, same conclusions as last week. We are of all people most to be real, R-E-A-L. We don't have pretenses that say, well, I don't have that problem. <laughs> We've got all the potential problems of the flesh, of being fallen, of tipping our hat to Satan and his purposes and, and, and war in our members instead of the purposes of God. And so the very first thing we come to is a conclusion that we humbly are people that walk by the grace of God and we walk carefully keeping a short account with God in terms of the things and affairs of our life 
second conclusion you come to is that we not only are the most real of people, we really are the most optimistic of people. Because it's God's purposes in my life that have put my feet on firm ground, that have found for me a place to have a behavior in the lives of others that lasts for eternity, and that ultimately will be ones who are with others around us, able to be a showpiece of the grace of God in our world. And we as a world need that. We need people who humbly say, it's not me, it's the Jesus in me that does what I do. The third conclusion we come to is that we are, of all people, most grateful. I wouldn't have dreamed uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, as I was had the bit in my mouth and was running in a direction away from God, that he would place my feet back in a way where I could have ministry in the lives of others. But he did, and I'm very grateful for it. Likewise, for you, unlike those sailors in that submarine, is there any hope? For us, there is. I love not only the book of James. In fact, I shared with one person today, first time I've ever shared with them, um, what I have is kind of an honorary thought. After we're through this book in five years, I may turn right around and do it again. I, I like it that much. I may go to nothing else, just go back to James, but that's for a future. But I said, we are a people of hope. Peter wrote, Peter, who said, Jesus said, when you've recovered, go and strengthen your brethren. Peter wrote, praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that never perishes. And then a little later on in the book, he says, We have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. So when we reach into the barrels of life, we don't pull out cash. We don't pull out business successes so we can spend it on ourselves. We don't pull out ego and pride and all those kinds of things which so easily come out of the members that are in our heart. We pull out wisdom and grace and mercy and say, there but for the grace of God go I. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that in the times when we look into the mirror of your word and we have it to discern the affairs and fashions of our life and divide among the uh, fibers of motive and behavior that it's your word and your spirit that assists us in that review and in that walk. We do pray for the McCracken family and for those others that have health issues in our body that your grace and your mercy and your comfort would be with them. In Jesus' name, amen.